Welcome to the David Suisa podcast here at the Jewish Journal Studio, our weekly podcast where we like to talk with interesting people doing interesting things. Today, we're very happy to have my friend Brooke Goldstein, who's a New York-based human rights attorney, film producer, founding director of the Lawfare Project, as well as founding director of the Children's Rights Institute and an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. Former. Former. Correct. Thank you. Thank you, Brooke. <laughs> she's also, as you can tell, she's a powerful, outspoken defender of Israel, seen on Fox News, and a Toronto native often specializes in the overlooked victims of terrorism. In the early 2000s, while still in law school, she spent time in the West Bank and Gaza interviewing young Palestinian children who had been recruited by terrorist groups and the Palestinian Authority. This evolved into the award-winning 2006 film, The Making of a Martyr. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you, David. So let's start with that movie. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the suicide bomber, the child suicide bomber who's at the center of that film, uh, 15-year-old Hussam Abdul. Hussam Abdul, yeah. So I first learned about Hussam when I was in my second year of law school. And um, I happened to be taking a class called Human Rights and the Child. And I was home one day, and I was doing my homework, and I was watching TV at the same time. And there broadcast before me was this image of a 15-year-old, physically handicapped, rumored to be mentally handicapped, Palestinian Arab child with live explosives strapped around his waist and his arms in the air, turning around for the camera uh, as a electronic device was cutting off his suicide belt. And it turns out that this 15-year-old boy was recruited by the Palestinian Arab terrorist group, the Al-Aqsa Martyr Brigades. He was paid the equivalent of $20 to blow himself up. And he was told not to tell his parents where he was going. He was picked up by adults, driven to the Hawara checkpoint, which is just outside of Navalis, and he was told to blow himself up amongst the Palestinian Arabs waiting online to get into Israel. But, uh, as my movie shows, and fortunately for Hussam and for those at the checkpoint that day, he proved smarter than the adults who recruited him because he chickened out. He chose life, and he was subsequently arrested. He was tried and convicted of attempted murder, and he was sentenced to eight years in prison. Did you keep track of him? So we reached out and sent him the movie after it was made, and I was told that he was very happy with it. But I haven't spoken to him recently. He's out of prison. I'm not quite sure what he's doing. I actually would like to follow up. Talk to us about the reaction to the film. I'm especially interested in whether... Palestinians saw the film or, you know, Arabs saw the film. I could imagine that it had a good reaction with the Jewish community, but what about the others? Palestinian Arabs were actually instrumental in helping us make the film. I mean, we worked together with Masad Abu Toma, who is mm-hmm. Khalid Abu Toma's older brother. He was our fixer. He arranged the interviews for us. Um, but did you get distribution? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, so ironically, the film got, was awarded the Audience Choice Award for Best Film at the United Nations Documentary Film Festival in 2006. And it's ironic because the United Nations, through UNRWA, the United Nations Works Agency, which has been in the news 
recently because of the Trump administration cutting funding, is responsible for aiding and abetting the premeditated murder of innocent Arab children the way that we show in our film because UNRWA runs schools with U.S. taxpayer dollars that hires teachers straight off the Hamas payroll, has invited Al-Qutla al-Islamiyah, which is the Hamas youth wing, into the school to recruit children directly out of the school. UNRWA schools, as we know from, I think it was Operation Cash Sled, uh, were used as rocket launching pads, as storage facilities for terrorist groups, for their um, arms. So to get an award from the UN, you know, basically recognizing that this is a crime against humanity, this systemic abuse of, of Arab children in this fashion was, you know, beyond ironic. So as executive director of the Lawfare Project, tell our uh, listeners an example of the kind of things you do. So the Lawfare Project is unique in the sense that we run the world's only pro-Israel litigation fund. And before I got into the business, I actually wanted to work for a Jewish public interest law firm. And I had just come from an incredible experience working as in-house counsel with Daniel Pipes at the Middle East Forum. Daniel really taught me everything I know about Islamism and introduced me to the concept of lawfare. And with him, we ran a legal defensive fund. And um, I wanted to work you know, enforcing the civil rights of the Jewish community. If you look around at ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, the Muslims have their legal fund, the Muslim Legal Fund for America, Council on American Islamic Relations, atheists have legal funds, Christians have legal funds. Where was the Jewish legal fund? You know, there are so many lawyers in the community. Where were they? And there was none. So in 2010, we incorporated the Lawfare Project, and now we run, as I said, the world's only pro-Israel litigation fund. We have a network of over 350 lawyers around the world. We have a lawyer in almost every single Western jurisdiction. And we file groundbreaking civil rights lawsuits on behalf of the Jewish people. Give us an example. Well, uh, one example that got a little press was uh, the legal efforts that we spearheaded against Kuwait Airways Corporation. Kuwait Airways is the state-run airline company for Kuwait, which is, as you know, engaged in the Arab League boycott. And the airline refused and still refuses to carry any passenger with an Israeli passport, which is illegal in most Western democracies. It's commercial discrimination against someone because of their national origin. So we worked together with Port Authority, which is the landlord at JFK, which resulted in the Port Authority sending a letter to Kuwait Airways after we pointed out they were operating in violation of their lease, also in violation of federal aviation law and state anti-discrimination law. And instead of complying with the law, Kuwait Airways decided to shut down its JFK London route. And after that victory, we went and sued them in Switzerland. We are currently suing them in Germany. We have succeeded in shutting down all of their inter-European flight paths, and now we're going after their connecting flights. And the point is, anyone who engages in this type of discriminatory, anti-Semitic, bigoted commercial behavior against the Jewish people will pay, and they will pay with their pocket, and they will pay because they will be uh, publicly humiliated, as we have with Kuwait Airways. So you say that... Uh Israel's enemies cannot defeat us on the battlefield, so they resort to asymmetrical warfare tactics, lawfare. So lawfare is a term of art. It was coined, I believe, by Major General 
Major General Charles Dunlap in a Harvard Law Review essay. I think it was published in 1991. And basically, the most simple definition, which I think is the most accurate definition, is the use of the law as a weapon of war. Lawfare, warfare. It's an amalgamation of the two. And as you uh, mentioned earlier, lawfare is used as a complementary tactic to the battlefield. So we see it with Israel, you know, the, the terrorists understand that they are not going to defeat Israel on the battlefield because Israel is far superior than they are. But what they will do is they will attempt to delegitimize Israel in the eyes of the world by going to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, going to the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, filing war crimes charges in Spain, Switzerland, Belgium, Canada, what have you, and try and tie Israel's hands through legal efforts, which are illegitimate. Now, there's a debate in the legal world, um, in, the, in academia right now, is lawfare positive or negative? And I think it's a false debate because those who think it's, it's or a neutral term, those who say, let's say it's a neutral term, say, well, wouldn't you rather terrorists use the courts as opposed to the battlefield? Well, yeah, of course I would, but that's not what they're doing. They're using the courts to complement the battlefield. I mean, if they would stop blowing people up and just suing people, for sure, I mean, we would welcome that. But that's not the case. And then you have a circumstance where you have zero due process in international law, where you have, you know, the International Court of Justice's advisory opinion declaring Israel's border fence, brick and mortar and, and I don't know, barbed wire, a crime against humanity. The court refused to enter into evidence the very relevant fact that the fence contributed to a sharp decline in the loss of human life. The court refused to consider the testimony of terror victims. That's not due process. That's not justice. That's lawfare. You know what I find fascinating? For the past couple of decades, the conventional wisdom in the pro-Israel activist world was that we needed better asbara, better public relations. And an incredible amount of money has gone behind improving Israel's public relations. And I'm sensing a little bit of a shift because the truth is that you know public relations is about making people feel good about your brand, whereas your approach is totally different. You say, I don't care how you feel about us. I'm going to take you to court. Do you sense a shift between PR fare to warfare? Because you can make a strong case that the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been invested in better PR for Israel hasn't really had a significant positive right. outcome. So yeah. I have a feeling this is not a politically correct podcast. So I'm going to agree with you completely. There has been an incredible amount of waste in the community. We are training our kids and our students to, to be on the defense. We publish pamphlets, and, and there are organizations, advocacy organizations, that advertise. We teach children how to defend Israel. With talking points. Right. Why are we sending our children into the arena with a sword, I mean with a shield? Defend yourselves. That's not their job. Send them with a sword, okay? Go out there. It is not our job to, to explain to people why Israel is not an apartheid state, but it is our job as human rights activists, as, as civil rights activists, to talk about the very real gender, race, and religious apartheid that is happening in every single Muslim-majority country. It is very much our duty as human beings to talk about the slave trade in Saudi Arabia, to talk about the wide-scale 
abuse of women and children in the Islamist world. That is what we need to be talking about, changing the narrative. But on the other hand, and you know, I'm going to, to, to put my organization out there, we have to be really conscious with the money that we're spending because the Jewish community entrusts not-for-profits, and they expect us to give a good return on investment, okay? The Lawfare Project has filed 57 lawsuits in the past two years for under half a million dollars. And that's because we are able to recruit over a million dollars worth of pro bono legal services from the community. And that is a return on investment right there. We should not be spending money to defend Israel. That is not our job. You know, how can we ask for respect if we don't respect our own basic civil rights? If kids are getting punched in the face at Temple University, one of my former clients, Daniel Vassal, was punched in the face by an SJP associate. If there are rampant, hostile environments and discrimination and free speech and Title VI violations happening on campus, and all we're doing is publishing pamphlets, I mean, how can we ask the community to respect us if we don't respect ourselves, if, if we don't behave like other minority communities and engage in aggressive civil rights litigation? That, to me, I think is the best return on investment. All right. I'm very interested in talking about college campuses because this has become a very high-interest, high-stakes arena in, uh, in the, in the pro-Israel community. And an enormous amount of investment is going into this arena. So talk to me about how you can take the tools of lawfare that you use every day that you've used in all your other cases and, and how that would apply to the campus and whether that would empower students. Because on the one hand, you know, uh, having talking points and organizing pro-Israel events feels like a more natural thing to do for a student, but you know, fighting a legal battle and wearing a sword rather than a shield is not necessarily made for everyone. So how do you how do you take this lawfare concept and bring it to the college campus in a way that doesn't just fight back, but also right. engages well, why doesn't students. civil rights advocacy come natural to us? Why, why is it if you look at the African-American community, if you look at the LGBT community, if you look at you know what ACLU is doing, Civil rights advocacy and litigation has been, is one of the oldest methods of change in this country. And students whose basic civil rights are violated should have easy access to pro bono counsel. And so that's where, so where we fill it in. Now, what can you do? One of the things that I learned is how, how powerful a mere lawyer's letter is, okay? When Hillel came to us at Rutgers University and told us that they were raising money for the so-called flotilla, that U.S. to Gaza and Baca and all these groups were manipulating the student body and raising and doing fundraisers there. The community was up in arms. Everybody was sending letters and, and, and sending out press releases and, you know, protests and so forth. And it did nothing. The university administration, you know, said free speech, free speech. It's obviously not a correct analysis of free speech, but we can get into that later. And, and the administration did nothing. So we prepared a very nice legal memo telling the president of Rutgers that if he releases the funds raised, he faces over 20 years of jail time and a potential lawsuit for material support for terrorism because we showed how these groups, U.S. to Gaza and Baca, 
were potentially engaging with Hamas, a designated terrorist group, and could implicate them. And lo and behold, when you appeal to the, you know, self-interest of the president of Rutgers, you know, he, he didn't release the money. And if you look at what's happening SFSU, which in my opinion is ground zero for the um, anti-Semitic movement that is sweeping— San Francisco Francisco State University sweeping um, American campuses right now. SFSU is significant because that's where GUPS was established. The General Union for Palestinian Students, which has then morphed into an SJP, Students for Justice of Palestine, uh, in different campuses. Arafat himself came to SFSU and and established it there. Now, they use lawfare, correctly? Pardon me. They, They, SJP. Students for Justice so I don't, in Palestine. I'm not I'm aware of any in, lawsuits that, that they've filed. Not so much but lawsuit, but in the sense of those BDS resolutions, it seems to have a legal yeah, component yeah, you could to figure out so all their, the rules. Their lawfare is about manipulating legal terminology, okay, the misuse and misapplication of legal terminology. Terms like apartheid, terms like genocide, terrorism, um, illegal occupation, and so forth that have legal definitions, a Palestinian state. What is a state in international law? Uh, there's no Palestinian state. There's no state of Palestine. There's no recognized borders. There's no defined population, especially if the majority of the po- population is refugees. It's not even going to live there, apparently. That's interesting. Okay? So, so law they fair, take, they manipulate legal terminology. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's definitely an element of lawfare. But if you look at what's happening at SFSU, okay, Jerusalem Mayor Nir Barkat came to speak. And he was shouted down aggressively, and the attendees felt threatened. And what was significant is that the university administration told the campus police to stand down. They gave them a stand-down order. Why is that significant? Because if you monitor, as you do, and I'm sure much of your audience does, the anti-Israel and anti-Semitic movement is testing the waters They do something, and then they see what our reaction is. And they go a little bit further, and they see what our reaction is. Here, it was almost as if they were on the verge of violence. They were screaming, get the F off campus. They were getting physically close. And the administration told the police, stand down. Allow those students to engage in a hostile and and threatening manner with the attendees and the Jewish students. Okay, that is also a violation of of the First Amendment free speech rights of the attendees and the students to hear Marinier Barkat. So what did you do? So we we sued them. We filed a suit in a federal court um, and it's being widely misreported that the suit was dismissed. It was not dismissed. We were given leave to amend and shorten the complaint, which is a regular Can you summarize the complaint for us? Yeah. And then we also filed a state complaint um, last week, which which argues violations of the UNRWA Act. It's a civil rights suit. Um, On the federal complaint, we are alleging free speech violations, which I just explained, and also violations of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. It's it's really a groundbreaking suit because it's the first time that um, we will be asking a court to to rule that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act applies to protect Jewish students as an ethnic and religious group. It's it's you know, what I would call um, really one of the most groundbreaking lawsuits for our community. Yeah, there was a similar situation with uh, Ambassador Michael Oren a few years ago at UC Irvine, where they decided that mm -hmm. heckling is not Mm -hmm. free speech. Mm -hmm. And criminal charges were filed. And yet the Attorney General's office refused to file 
Correct. criminal charges against the students, and I believe it was for political reasons. Now, there is a sort of similarity with San Francisco State, isn't absolutely, there? Absolutely, right. absolutely. If anything, it was more threatening in our circumstance, and further, you, we are dealing with an, an overtly hostile environment at the school. Uh, Jewish students are afraid to wear Jewish stars or any outward symbol of their religion. They take circuitous routes to um, their classes. Uh, some have said that they are discouraged. They feel discouraged from taking classes in the uh, ethnic studies department because if they have any type of pro-Israel or Zionistic point of view, they're going to get a bad grade. Further, the state complaint uh, is based on an incident called the Know Your Rights Fair where Hillel, the only Jewish student group on campus, was refused and denied the ability to table with all the other student groups because they were Jewish, because they were Jewish. And the professor at issue, one of the professors at issue who is a defendant in our federal complaint actually went on the media and said and, and declared that Hillel, a Jewish group, Jewish students, American students, not Israelis, American Jewish students are white colonial oppressors and therefore Hillel does not deserve to have a place. Now, if that's not racism, I don't know what is. What okay? kind of reaction are you getting on campuses from Jewish groups like Hillel? Are they being supportive? Do they push back? Do they appreciate and value your aggressive The approach? community, the Jewish community, absolutely values what we are doing. The students 100% value what we are, what we are doing. Um, in terms of Jewish community and establishment, I mean, it's a mixed bag. It's always been a mixed bag. Nobody can agree on the right approach. And I understand because these groups have been trying very hard and with excellent intentions for a very long time to solve this problem. And we kind of come in and, and we say, hey, we got to assume enough is enough. And lawsuits really make change. So I think it has forced the community to step back and, and do a little inward thinking and, and reevaluation of what we talked about earlier. Are, are we giving our donors the best ROI, the best return on investment? Is all this advocacy and pro-Israel, uh, I don't know, events, are they really doing the job and, and, and turning the tide? Mm -hmm. Tell us about, are you getting any opposition? Have you received any opposition in the Jewish community? What's that of been course. Like? I mean, we, we have received so much support, okay? But we've also been called aggressive, which I think is a, a wonderful compliment. It's so funny because if someone says you are aggressively using the legal system to pursue your civil rights, well, damn straight we are. You know, why, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we behave as proud Jews and act like every other minority community does in this country and aggressively pursue our civil and human rights? We live in a time and in a place where we are blessed to be afforded with an objective judicial, judicial system, and we would be remiss not to take advantage of it. Now, speaking of that system, uh, you're a native of Canada, and, and you've said that you are shocked by Americans' lack of familiarity with the First Amendment. So why does this gap exist, and can you talk about right. it? Right. So I, I said that a while ago, um, and that was actually, I think it was during an interview with someone asking, why did I write my first book, Lawfare, The War Against Free Speech? And what's a Canadian doing writing about the First Amendment? You know? And 
One of the reasons why I chose to pursue my legal degree here in the United States is, is because I have a, a very deep respect for the U.S. Constitution and the rights that it affords our citizenry vis-a-vis the government. I think it is one of the most, it is the most brilliant man-made document, okay, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, political organization and, and the law. And when I was working um, at the Middle East Forum and we were running the Legal Defense Fund, which financed the defense of counterterrorism personnel and other outspoken people who were sued for speaking publicly about theologically motivated terrorism, namely Islamist terrorism. They were sued by the very terror organizations and terror front organizations they were exposing to shut them up as a means of silencing them. You know, I would get a call almost like every week and a half can I republish the Danish cartoon of Muhammad? Is that illegal here? Can we talk about Islam? And so lawfare was really having this chilling effect, which Daniel Pipes has written about quite extensively. And I was depressed about it. I mean, the average American really doesn't understand the First Amendment. The president of Rutgers didn't understand the First Amendment. Anyone who says free speech, free speech, okay, when they're proactively giving a platform to someone that has has no place, um, you know, lecturing a student community, doesn't understand the concept. The First Amendment is there to protect the people against government encroachment on free speech. It has nothing to do with citizen A deciding to give or not deciding to give a platform to citizen B, like Ayan Hirsi Ali or or what have you, which was the whole controversy at Brandeis. that uh, really motivated me to, to write my book. Okay, so basically the freedom to offend, the freedom to insult is... Is the highest, afforded yes. the highest protection in this country. And one of my favorite quotes that I'm going to mess up right now <laughs> is a Benjamin Franklin quote that says something uh, like, you know, if you are to subdue the freedoms of a, of a democracy or society, you start with freedom of speech. Okay, which is why the Islamophobia, the so-called Islamophobia movement is so dangerous because they want to shame us and sue us and really kill us into not speaking publicly about Islamist terrorism, the Islamist roots of Islamist terrorism. Okay, and if we can't speak about it, if we can't draw cartoons about it, how are we going to understand it and defeat it? You know, it's interesting, Brooke, because there's a conventional wisdom that hate speech is illegal. Mm. One of the most chilling things I ever heard from a first speech expert and attorney is that hate speech is not illegal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, hate speech is the cornerstone of liberal democracy. The and, and look, the right to criticize religion, the right to criticize government. When did that become so uncool, man? Like, weren't we all about that in the 70s and the 80s? Like, religion was not cool. Let's criticize the pope. Let's criticize the rabbi. Let's criticize the imam. And now, all of a sudden, religion is immune from criticism? Mm. I mean, that is the the 180 turn, the upside down through the looking glass uh, where we are with the so-called liberal progressive movement right now, which shields religious authorities from criticism at the expense of those who are abused at the hands of those authorities. I can tell you, you know, as a writer and someone who was born in the third world and has been raised in in this free speech environment of America, if I had to pick the one freedom that I cherish the most is the freedom to write a column criticizing the leader of my country Mm -hmm. and knowing that nobody's going to come to my house that night and knock on the door. Exactly. Freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of the press, free speech. It is all 
in the same bag and, again, is the cornerstone of, of any healthy liberal democracy. So I'm going to ask you before we let you go, uh, which case is top of mind with you right now that you're working on? I'm sure you have a whole bunch, but if you have to pick oh God, one. just one. Yeah. Well, right now we're engaged in a suit against the National Lawyers Guild. And this comes to mind because of uh, this, we just passed the 70th anniversary of the Nuremberg Laws and because of everything that's happening in Poland right now. Um, and if you bear with me for a second, I'll, I'll explain why I think this is so significant. The reason why Nazi Germany was able to engage in the dehumanization and eventually mass genocide and murder of the minority population of Jews was because they very strategically had a top-down approach, okay, where they went to the medical professions, the legal professions, and they banned Jews. And from their top-down, when it was legitimate at the highest levels, it trickled down. Here in America, the National Lawyers Guild, one of the oldest guilds in the legal profession in America, has a policy of discriminating against Israelis because it is a Jewish state. In fact, my client, an Israeli corporation, went and during the National Lawyers Guild annual conference wanted to buy an ad congratulating them for their civil rights work. They actually sent an email to the client saying, I'm sorry, we have a policy, I'm paraphrasing here, we don't do business with Israelis. This is a legal guild engaged in illegal commercial discrimination. It is a violation of New York State anti-discrimination law not to do business with someone because of their race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or national this origin. This has gotten hardly okay? any, any news coverage. We're going we're gonna to get there. Can we I just, ask for a yeah. column in the Jewish Journal on this? Okay, fine. Okay, good. Will you ghostwrite it for me? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. One. It would be an honor. So right. so we are now suing them uh, for commercial discrimination. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot. I just read something yesterday that just shook me up. Um, Cape Town in South Africa is, is entering one of the worst droughts in its history. It's getting to the point where people don't take showers. They're like, there's a real scare and a fear. I have a friend of mine who's there and called me up last night and told me what's going on. And there's a sense of major, major crisis. And it turns out that the BDS movement canceled a water conference a few years ago that would have solved the Correct, problem. because of Israeli technology. Yeah, with Israeli technology. Yeah. And Israel has offered time and time and time again to come and uh, use its know-how. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's a creative lawsuit there because there's damages well, well, this on is behalf the of the essence, people. This is the essence of any movement based on hate. Okay, They would rather hurt the people they claim to be protecting because of their animus um, than actually work towards solutions right, and but human th this rights. Is, they're, they're saying that thousands of people yeah. might, might die it's, of thirst. I'm, so. You know, it's an, I just thought of You did put me on the spot. I'm thinking right now my... My wheels are turning. Is there some sort of negligence uh, suit? But, you know, the state would probably have sovereign immunity. I don't know if an individual... I don't, I don't know. I'm not familiar with the, with the well, law Well, if there. it does happen, you heard it here first with David Suisse on the Jewish Journal podcast, Brooke Goldstein. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.